this morning, I'd like you to turn back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Hopefully you should have this verse memorized by now, or this passage. And before we read it this morning, I want to just share my heart briefly with you because um, last week we broke ground on what I consider the second essential element um, that was the essential nature of the way the New Testament church was. And we spent considerable time uh, several months ago talking about how they devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching. And then last week we talked about this thing called the fellowship. And in the teaching last week, we just talked about how that in a lot of our translations, um, the term there is used as a verb. But the literal Greek New Testament translates it as a noun because of the definite article the. And uh, so I read out of a translation which I felt was a more literal translation. It It says they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and the fellowship. And so we talked about what made the people of God that unique and singular family, community, a family of families, a community of communities, what made them uh, so unique, so chosen by God, and we know it's because of the stewardship of a common salvation. And so we kind of ended last week in Romans 8 where it said those that he called, he foreknew, he predestinated, and he justified them, and he glorified them. And after that work, which was accomplished through Christ on the cross, he chose for himself a people that would be that unique and chosen people unto himself, that he could display through them a glory that he desires to go throughout the world. And I believe that it's a fulfillment of John 17 where Jesus said, Father, I pray that they'll be one just like you and I are one And so that the whole world will know that truly I've been sent by you. And that the love that we have shared together may be in them and that they would be one through that love that they experience. The love that you and I, and I'm paraphrasing, but the love that you and I share. That they would love exactly the exact same way as we love each other. And so... In that environment of love comes forth a unity that is to be a testimony that convicts and causes the world to see that there's more to the world than pride and fear. Can you say amen? Then then subjugation and hatred and prejudice and slavery. Where I'm trying to prove that I'm something, but by trying to prove that I'm something, I have to prove that you're nothing. Or that I have to dominate you and show that you're inferior to make myself feel like I'm superior. And that's the world that is in the grip of darkness and those two operating systems and and they're, they're one system but two faces. Either Satan snares mankind through through the pride of men, through the nature of pride or through the nature of fear. And so God has introduced His nature 
His light, His life, and it's called the nature of love. And He wants us to radically, through the unity of the community, the unity of a, of a new humanity that is built and based on love, by the revelation of the nature of God, that truly light would shine out and pierce the darkness. Do you believe that? That we would abolish darkness wherever it is. That by the, by the pressing of the church into the grace of God to respond to the Father's love and then allow that love to transform us and then sharing it with others, we can, you know, storm the gates of hell and say that we will no longer live under the tyranny of, of pride or the tyranny of fear that slaves us to a low level of living, but we want to engage in Zoe, the God kind of life. And the God kind of life, that way is the way of love. However, before you, though, begin to break that down, we know that it's the most challenging walk that any of us would ever sign up for. And uh, one, of, one of the guys that I admire and appreciate, Rick Joyner, he said this, he said, uh, there are two people that are out to kill you, God and Satan, let God win, all right? And I've often meditated on that, that statement. But I tell you that we cannot walk in the way of love, the way of God, the way of agape, unless there is a death that occurs in us. To love means that you have to die. That you have to die to a self-centeredness. You have to die to the nature of pride that says, I always will come out the winner. That I will win, I'll come out on the other side, and I'm going to be in charge and I will be in control. That you have to die to a self-centeredness that, that is counterintuitive to the way you have lived your life that says the strong ones will and must survive. And I'm going to let no one beat me down and no one take advantage of me. No one is going to victimize me. No one can hurt me. And, and so I'm just going to right now draw the line and I'm going to say that I'm going to stand up for myself. And all of that has a, a sound of wisdom to it. But I tell you what, what we've done in the church is, and, and I always say there are exceptions to the rule, okay? So when I teach this message on the way of love, uh, I'm, I know that there are moments in which, you know, in the, the forbearance and the patience and the way we endure with certain people, there comes a point in time where love turns tough. It's not tender. It turns tough. Do you hear what I'm saying? And that there is a moment in time where you do draw boundaries with abusive people. There is this thing where for clarification, there becomes separation. There are those that are a part of the family of God. And there are those that are acting like the family of God. They love all the benefits, but they don't want the responsibility of citizenship. And so there are times where you just say, excuse me, you are not a part of the body of Christ." 
your behavior, you're an abuser, you're immoral or whatever, where you take and say, no, that which belongs to the body, which is love and forgiveness and acceptance, belongs to the body, and you're not acting like the body. But the challenge is, is that we take the exception and make it the rule. There is an exception to the rule, but I find in the church today that we take the exception and make it the norm. And so whenever we get offended or we're, we're pressed and we're stretched by a relationship with a brother or sister or with a part of our family, what we do is we immediately go thermonuclear. We go to DEFCOM 3. We start the carpet bombing. Do you hear what I'm saying? And we want them out of our lives. Or we say we have a right to quit on them. Or we immediately reject them and build barriers and say, I'm not going to allow you to trespass against me and hurt me. You did that once, you did that twice, and three strikes and you're out. Okay? Now I'm going to make another qualifying statement. Whenever you share a message on the way of love, the walk of love, and there are many things that characterize the walk of love, and I'm not going to take the time to teach it point by point, but there are 15 characteristics of love found in 1 Corinthians 13. About half of them are what we should not allow love to look like in our life. So it says love is not rude or Love is not self-seeking, or and it lists some negatives. And then about half of them are positive. Love is kind, and love is patient, and love keeps no record of wrong. I ask you to immerse yourself in that chapter, because what you see there is a descriptor of the nature of God. We know that God is love. Matter of fact, there was no point in the revelation of the Spirit to John when he said God is love. The Holy Spirit could not delineate between the nature of love and the nature of God himself. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit, John pins down and he says, God is love. Not God possesses love or he has attributes of love. He says the very core of his nature is love. Sometimes I, uh, there's a lot I'm processing and I'll try to sort out what I should say and what I shouldn't say this morning. And I don't want to create a theological debate, but I'll just throw this out for the theologians here. For a long time, if you study systematic theology, one of the first things when it comes to the study of the nature of God, they will say the chief attribute of God is His holiness. And I say because we have focused upon the holiness of God and allowed it to supersede above what the Scripture has revealed as the chief character of the nature of God. We've got a lot of things wrong in the church. And I believe that we need to rewrite our systematic theology and say that the chief attribute of God is what the Scripture testifies it is, and that is God is love. And you will misinterpret His justice, His holiness, and even His 
zeal for truth unless it's built upon the foundation of love. And so what we do is we try to, you know, that sense of truth and justice and holiness, and then somehow we try to take and make that the primary foundation of God's nature, and then somehow attach love to it, and it turns out into something that, that is abusive. It turns out to being something that's religious, something that causes the world that needs the light of life and the light of love to be seen. They need to see the true representation of the nature of God to be visible in the community. But instead of it being attractive, it becomes something that's repulsive. And I do believe that we are stewards of truth. I believe we should be stewards of justice. We should be a people that are called to holiness but somehow our, our call to truth, justice, and holiness does not displace the foundational reality of the nature of God or His people. And so if we say, what is the defining earmark of the fellowship? It's love. Because God is love. Now, when you talk about the perfection and the maturity of love, and what that looks like, and you read 1 Corinthians 13, you go, oh, my word. And Alger and I just had a brief moment to fellowship, and he was starting to preach my message. And I said, I said, I mean, it was neat to compare notes. And it was like, wow, this is good. And I said, you're preaching. Why don't you preach this morning? You got the message. And I said, this, this is exactly where I'm going today. And I just shared with him, I said that there is this danger of talking about a subject where you're still in the process yourself. And Paul said, I have to be careful about preaching to others something, and then all of a sudden I find myself disqualified by the very standard of the message that I preach, and I find myself that I can become a castaway. And so this morning I tell you, this word is like a plumb line that I don't want to just drop beside your life. But I want you to know that as I was praying and as I was preparing for this message, I felt the Holy Spirit dropping the plumb line beside my life. And I was, while I was driving over here and last night and the night before and the times that I worked on the message through the week, I did a lot of repenting myself. Because I found that the word was a mirror and I saw myself as a man who wants to love like God loves. But I find my love is so frail, so weak. And so this morning I want to say to all of us, I don't want to share this message in a way that it comes out harsh. I would never want us to walk out that all of a sudden that there is this thing of legalism where it's like, okay, Lynn has shown us what the way of love looks like. And so now I'm on task to try to be mature in love because we've been told that the community of the communities is a community of love. And you've pointed out how I don't love. So now I've got to love and we walk out with this gritted teeth, weight and pressure upon us to love, and so we go home 
with this word hanging over our lives of the word of love and we're just going to love our spouse the best way we can. And you end up, what you end up doing is when you apply the revelation of God with the human will under pressure instead of in the grace of God. So what I ask this morning is that as we we share the truth, we understand that whenever truth comes forth under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, there is a corresponding grace package that comes to our lives where the impossible, which is loving difficult people, it is impossible in the nature of fallen humanity and the limitations on us to love people perfectly. Do you hear what I'm saying? God loves people perfectly. And so here is this perfect call that calls us to a perfect love with an imperfect people that are mature and broken and we've been wounded ourselves. And then the truth is laid out and measured to us and the plumb line drops beside our foundation and we go, oh, I'm not loving the way I should. And then we feel this pressure to perform. And this is what I want us to do is I want us to respond to God in grace. And grace, again, is that superior provision that makes impossible things easy and we think I can't do that I've never been able to do that I want you to have a vision here that God is coming to us as a people of God and saying that I'm going to give you more grace I'm going to give you more of my heart I'm going to love you even more in the revelation of it experiential revelation of it and I'm going to give you a greater capacity so that you can do what I do love imperfect people perfectly can I give you just a little illustration you know and it's one of those things that I hate to do as a pastor or I hate to do as a preacher of the gospel but because giving is in the Bible guess what I don't get to pick and choose what I I can preach. The Lord says, I want you to preach on giving. And an aspect of giving is tithing, right? And you go, wait a minute, I thought you were teaching on love. Now you're going to teach on tithing. And so what we do is, you know, it's kind of an intimidating thing because people go, oh, he's going to preach on giving. He's going to preach on tithing. And so everybody, when it comes to the tithe, we know that the tithe by its literal definition, is 10%. And so, this is an example. This is not the message. This is an example. So whenever you teach on the tithe, and people hear the definition of tithe, meaning 10%, people either give up immediately when they hear that and say, I can't do that. Based upon what I owe in credit cards, based upon what my mortgage is, based upon what my bills are, based upon what my salary is, it would be impossible for me to do that. But this is the great thing about obedience. Obedience means that we grow unto something. And so that when I teach about tithing, since we are a people of grace and in the New Testament, 
I tell people, this is what God desires, but if your faith is not there, why don't you start out somewhere to where it's not an either-or proposal? How about beginner tithing? Where if you're giving nothing, you start giving 1%. He said, prove me in this. And when he said, prove me, he wasn't up there saying, my dare you to test me on this, you know. If you don't measure up, I'm going to. How about God is inviting us and saying, I want to show you my faithfulness. I want to show you the power of my provision. I want to show you that your job is not the source, it's me. And so I invite you to engage me in a level of obedience based upon where your faith is at. And so I tell people, and I've had people, and they say, Pastor, I can't tithe. And I say, okay, if your faith is not there, what can you begin to give? And I found out that if people will start to engage in a maturing process and take the baby steps of obedience, 1% can lead to 2%. 2% can lead to 3%. 3% because God said, if you'll test me in this, I will show you that I'm your source, that I give blessings where you didn't think the blessings were going to come. You're looking for the blessing somewhere on the earth, but it comes from heaven. And so I find that this same illustration on tithing, I want to bring it out on the realm of love. Now, the perfect standard of God's word is this says, keep no records of wrong. And you go, oh Lord, there is no way I can sort through those files and those tin file cabinets that have meticulous records in my heart and mind of the people that have cheated me or wounded me or wronged me in life. But what I want to say is thus begin the process. Now, I believe that there is a way in which as we lean into God's grace and by faith trust Him, I do believe we're going to find a delete button where we can delete everything. But today, it may just be one file that the Holy Spirit brings to you and pulls that file out of ten and says, Today, I want this file deleted. And so you may not get to all the records, but you just get to one record. And so as we approach the message, and I'm in the message, but as we continue in the message, I don't want you to lose hope or faith that God can continue to do a work in us to transform us. Don't give up on love until we at least attempt in the grace of God to say, okay, I may have given up on being a person of love. I've become jaded. I've become cynical. I've become pessimistic. I'm about ready to give up on God and everybody else. I say, get back involved in the way of life, the way of love. And start out where you can. Is there one thing that you can say, okay, God, I'm going to risk this. I'm going to risk this. And I've walled my heart up and I've walled myself up to where I, I've got my, my barrier up to where I feel protected. But I want you just to be willing 
to hear God's invitation say, let me teach you. Come with me. I will mature you. I'll get you there. Don't give up when you see my perfection. You come and walk behind me. Take my hand. And if you can't take my hand and walk behind me, let me hold you and I will get you there. And so, in the grace of God, we just trust the Lord to cause us to see to where it doesn't condemn us, but it empowers us to again take off limits and to be obedient to God and to become a people of love. I want to share a story, and I told you to turn to the Scripture, and I hope that you're there, and I hope that you stay there, because we may get to it or we may not. But if we do, you'll be ready to read it along with me. One of the most powerful stories uh, that I have read, and it's this thing about giving God a little more, was found in a story or in a, in a book called The Normal Christian Life. How many of you ever read that by Watchman Nee? And I believe it's The Normal Christian Life. And he talks about... Uh, when he was in China as a pastor, he talked about this rice farmer that was a, a part of his congregation, part of the community, that had his water stolen by a couple other farmers. And you know that rice without water doesn't work. And they kept on di diverting the irrigation water away from his field so that their fields could be watered, to be fruitful, to be successful. And he kept on discovering that the water that was supposed to be irrigating his field, that he would find that his fields were being starved by water. And of course, when he recognized what they were doing, he started having problems with these two farmers. Wouldn't you? Come on, guys. You know, you're cheating me. You're trying to destroy me. There's a great injustice going on. Did the guy have a case? Absolutely. But he goes to Watchman Nee and he says, I want you to counsel me on what to do. These men have, have stolen and I understand I'm supposed to be forgiving, but they continue to do it. I try, I've done everything I know how to do, but they continue to do this. What should I do? And Watchman Nee counseled him. He said, the Bible tells us that we're to render good where there's evil. And that just as light penetrates darkness, good debilitates evil. And so he said, what I want you to do is I want you to go and I want you to water these men's fields. I'm going to pause. This is called the amen hand, if you don't know. Amen hand. I'm looking for one, searching for one. I'll even pay you for one if it gets too quiet. He said, I want you to go water their fields. And he says, see if the bitterness, the resentment, the hatred, the animosity that you feel towards them is broken by this act of love as you show goodness in the face of dark evil. And so he said that he went there and he said that he watered his, the, his enemy's fields. And he said, and he came back to Watchman Nee. And he says, Pastor, I want you to know I did what you told me to do. And I felt that I was obedient to the scripture, but I had no joy in doing it. 
How many of you know that when we really obey the Word of God, there is life there? When we really obey the Word of God, there should be this transforming moment of breakthrough where we become enlarged. We become more like God. So Houston, we've got a problem. If you obey God's Word and you water your enemy's field and you come back, but there was no joy in doing it because I found out that when we really go from glory to glory, from faith to faith, when we break out of the plateau that we've been on, where we've been stuck on immaturity, and we go ahead and say, I'm going to obey. I'm going to yield to God's grace, and I'm going to allow Him to take me to a new level. There should be a strength and a joy strength that brings and catapults us to there. That's why after I got saved, I mean, I felt like I could levitate. I could float. Do you hear what I'm saying? It wasn't just a mental thing. I felt the salvation of the Lord. I mean, there was a, an internal, emotional, spiritual combustion that happened on the inside of me of divine life. Where I knew that I'd passed from death to life. Something had happened. I couldn't explain it. I couldn't have uh, told you all of what I experienced. But I knew that something touched me. God touched me. My life was changed. And so Watchman Nee told him, he said, that was good that you watered your enemy's fields. But when or what order did you water them? Did you water your fields first? He said... He dropped his head and he said, yes, pastor. I watered mine first and then I went to my enemies. He said, now, it's important that you obey. But where we miss out on real, again, quantum breakthrough, those giant leaps of spiritual growth, is we don't fully obey God. Do you hear what I'm saying? It is the picture of Elisha telling the king of Israel, smite the arrows on the ground and you'll have victory over your enemy, Syria. And he struck him a few times and, you know, I don't know why. Maybe he thought that was undignified for a king to be taking a, a bunch of arrows and smashing them on the ground. And Elisha, on his deathbed, rose up and he said, oh, if you would have only smote them on the ground seven times instead of just three, you would have utterly destroyed your enemy forever. But instead, you only struck the ground three times. You will have three victories, but it won't be an absolute victory. And so he told the man, he said, now I want you to go back and repeat this obedience of the scripture of demonstrating good over evil and I want you to go back and water your enemy's fields but you water their fields first and then water yours and the response was that he came back home or came back to watchman knee after doing that and he says pastor I want you to know that I began to water my enemy's field and I went first and I went to the second one he said before it was all over I was filled with such a joy of the Lord. I was filled with such life within me that he said when I returned to my field to water it, it was as if the work of watering my field was not work. Because I felt a life and a strength on the inside of me that I got breakthrough. 
of being changed by loving somebody that was unlovable. And so as Christian believers, I find that sometimes it's not that we don't love. We don't love completely. We don't love fully. Our obedience, it's not that we are not obedient, but we're not fully obedient to the Lord. And if we're wanting that real transformation that will attract the world, that will cause, cause the world to run back to the church, that will shock their cynicism, shock their pessimism, shock their accusations that we're all a bunch of hypocrites. It will be when the church stands up in a, a maturity of love that loves them without condition. And they see that we love each other in a way which they long to be a part of a family that loves in that manner. Man, this was good preaching, whether you want to believe it or not. Okay, I want you to turn with me to 3 John. Everybody read Acts 2? Okay, good. While I was speaking, I'm glad that you read Acts 2. Okay, turn over with me to 3 John. It is 3 John, Jude, and then Revelation, so it's right in the back. Getting just a tiny bit of feedback. Could be that I am moving beyond my proper boundaries. I want you to look at verse 5 with me. You know, and I got to focus and go real quickly, but every book of the Bible is just filled with unbelievable truth. And 3 John is one of these books of the Bible that is a single chapter. And it's like a simple letter to... Uh, brother by the name of Gaius and the apostle John was trying to give him some instructions about traveling ministry and then it talks about another personality Diotrephes which was a self-centered brother that was arrogant and he was creating divisions and factions in the church and John said I'm, gonna, I'm coming and I'm going to deal with his attitude but I want to commend you for your heart for what you're doing and so you kind of have the good and the bad, and Diotrephes would also be the ugly, the bad and the ugly. But I want us to read, and I want us to catch a phrase in this passage of Scripture. He said, Dear friend, referring to Gaius, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. And then he begins to ask them to do something further. You will do well to send them on their way. And then I want you to look at this phrase. In a manner worthy of God. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 7. Because now he refers to these ministers. He says, for it was for the sake of the name that they went out. Receiving no help from the pagans. 
And so we ought to therefore show hospitalities to such men so that we may work together for the truth. But John said, you have shown love and hospitality to these men. But I want you to even go further because you received them. Now I want you to help them get to where they're going. And I want you to treat them in a manner worthy of God. That phrase to me has two implications. It goes back to some of the things that I said last week of how when we view each other in this room, we've got to see each other as the royal family of God, the aristocracy of heaven, future aristocracy of heaven, the ones that will be seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so this phrase can have two meanings. Number one, those that were coming and that they were showing hospitality to, that Gaius and members of the church received them as if they were receiving God into their home and into their church. Okay? So the messengers of God, these apostles or traveling teachers, they were looked at as people that were a part of the royal family. And so if they are of the family of God, we must treat them as if God were coming to visit our church. So the hospitality, the, the treatment of them, the respect for them, the honor of them, how we talk to them, how we behave around them, I must treat them, the family of God, just the same way as I treat God himself if he were coming for a visit. The second possible interpretation of this is that he was telling Gaius, I want you to treat them as if God were entertaining them. In other words, the traveling teachers are the messengers of God. But if God was welcoming them into his home, how would he treat his servants? How would he treat his own sons and daughters that have been on mission when they come into his house? How would God lavish care and hospitality and love? And I say that both of those interpretations and implications of that term in a manner worthy of God have a valid interpretation. Now, Paul said to the Galatian believers, he said, you know, I came to you, and when I came to you, I physically was having some struggles. And at one point he said to them, he said, it was as if you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And I have no idea what was going on with Paul, but Paul felt very vulnerable when he reached the churches of Galatia. And he said that you treated me not as a mere man, but you treated me as if you were ministering to God himself. You treated the message that I gave to you, not as the message of a man, but as a message that came directly from God. So this is the question I want to ask for us this morning. Can we, 
in the grace of God, ask the Holy Spirit to again further open our eyes to where when we see each other, we have a capacity to treat others as if it were God or in our ministry to them, we are ministering to them like God would minister to them. We treat them as if, and Jesus said in Matthew, when he talked about the judgment of the nations, he said, talking about the imprisoned and the poor and the broken and the sick, and they remarked when Jesus rewarded them with eternal life and with glory and blessing, he said, you did it unto me. And they said, when, Lord? And he said, when you did it under the least of these, you were doing it to me. Do we get, and we've got to get it. We've got to get it. We've got to make a shift out of viewing people after the flesh. And we must see them through the eyes of God. I've got to do it. I've got to see even the most broken, the most immature, the most sinful, the most separated from the life of God. I've got to see them through the eyes of the Lord and I've got to see them and minister to them as God would minister to them. And Jesus is perfect theology and we know what Jesus looks like when he ministers to sinners and to the broken and to the bruised. His ministry and his miracles all came out of a fountain and an ocean of compassion. I'm going to just throw out something because i got four minutes. And we're not going to go where I wanted to go today. We'll have to save it for part three or four or five. But the Corinthian church, that Paul looking for something to, you know, state positive about them. He talked about how they were enriched with knowledge and gifting. But we know that they took the knowledge and the revelation of the truth they possessed. And instead of partnering it with love, they mixed the revelation and the truth they got. And it became this thing that became a community that was repulsive. It was self-centered. It was self-seeking. It was about one over the other. It was about proving my knowledge is superior to yours. And they got into factions and divisions. Uh, they got into immorality. They, I mean, their knowledge apart from love, produced such a pride and an arrogance in them that they no longer resembled the church. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the discipline of the Lord that they were experiencing, and he said, some of you have gotten sick and some have even died. It was because they were not stewarding the knowledge they possessed, partnered on the foundation of love. We cannot, this is the serious part of the message, we got to quit messing around. We're involved in very powerful stuff. And for a congregation that wants to pursue the miraculous and the glory 
and the power of God, if we don't get the love walk down first, it will cause more casualties than it will produce miracles. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, comes to them and he makes this statement. He goes, you guys even coming together now, when you come and assemble, it is not even good. It would be better for you to remain as Christians apart because when you come together, it is chaos. Chaos in what way? Chaos in that their knowledge, they use their knowledge against each other to compete with one another. To have attitudes of superiority over each other. To judge each other. To even disqualify some and to become, you're approved to be in the clique and you're not. And he said, I'm telling you, if you continue to come into these sacred, holy gatherings together. Because this is holy. I want you to know, God looks at what we are doing this morning as something that is so sacred, so holy. This is when His legislation, legislature, His Congress comes before Him. As I said it last week, weighty matters in the kingdom of God are decided when the called out ones come together. We must be about the Father's business, not our business. We must be about the kingdom's agenda, not our agenda. And so in our worship, and in our agreement, and in our praying, and in our, the release of our faith and what God is wanting to do, He wanted to shift things in the Spirit in our region today. And so He doesn't look at you and saying, okay, oh, you know, I'm going to give you a pass that you can touch my glory and just think that you can behave in a manner in which you're immoral and, and ungodly and arrogant and proud and fearful that you can just come in here and waltz in here and touch my glory, handle my glory, do all these things. You're almost like a spiritual molester. Do you hear what I'm saying? But you have no regard for my body. And I'm telling you that because of that, you should know better. And because of that, some of you have gotten sick and some have even died because of it. Because they just came to get their own thing. Or to go in there with that knowledge and their arrogance and to say, I know what is right and, and I'm going to get my way. And I tell you what, if you don't think the American church is a modern day Corinth, I want to just update us. Corinth is alive and a well in the American church. And I get a little nauseous at some of the, the preachers that feed something in us of our pride and not feed a humility of spirit that allows us to walk in love. So I get a little nauseous and I think I'm like Jesus. Because in Laodicea, he got a little bit of nauseous about the Laodicean church. It was like the Corinthian church. They were so arrogant about all that they possessed in the knowledge. And he said, I want you to know, I don't view you in a similar condition that you see yourself. You think 
you boast about be, uh, being how wealthy you are and how you got it all together and, and, and it's arrogance. And he said, I view you as, as weak and as naked and as poor and you need to come back to the source and get clothed again with what I can clothe you with and that is love and humility. But he said, because of your state, you make me nauseous. I think about, and this is not to offend you if this is your favorite preacher's phrase, but I'm going to go ahead and state it because it probably needs to be stated. You know, if I hear one more time about my thing, you know, getting my thing from my God, and it's so self-centered about, it's all about you. May God reclaim the message where it's all about Him. And it's what we can be unto Him for Him. And then when we get the perspective right and we start viewing things through a lens of love, it's not what I can get from you, but brother, how can I serve you in your greatness? How can I become a servant king that takes the basin and towel and I see the greatness within Alger and I say that I'm willing to serve you, to make you a great one in God's kingdom. And by making him great, there is something that happens inside of me that enlarges my capacity to be great in God's kingdom. I tell you, love can change things. It changes the priorities. It changes the perspective. It changes the way we will live among each other. So I've got to look at every single person here and see that worth in which Jesus has clothed them with. And that is his own righteousness. And so because they're clothed in the righteousness of God in Christ, I have to then relate to them as if Jesus were around me. Man, it'll cause me to be a little more patient, won't it? Now, I'm going to finish. John, did we have that clip or did it work? Let me set this clip up and we'll finish and we'll pray. How many of you watched the musical Les Miserables? It was a movie that was out. (laughs) Good. I thought I was going to be the only one that liked it. It was good. It was a story of redemption of a man's life. But for those that haven't watched this movie or known this play and this story, It's about a man who, in a critical crisis, stole some bread to save his daughter's child from starvation. And he was arrested and he was put in prison for 20 years for stealing bread, even though it was to save a starving child. Well, after a 18, 19, 20-year prison sentence for doing what you thought, it was wrong, but he was doing it as an act of mercy you would come out pretty cynical, wouldn't you? You would feel like there is no justice. You would feel that there is no no sense of, of love, care. And so this guy comes out, and of course, he's now a convict, and every place that he goes, he has to let him know he's a convict, and people reject him, don't want him around, because they think he's a criminal. And so... He's been shaped by this prison experience to be jaded, cynical, filled with hate. And this is a moment in which, because he can't find a place to sleep, he goes to the outside of the church door 
And he thinks he's going to be beaten, but the priest wakes him up and says, no, don't stay here, come inside. And the priest feeds him. Sorry. I thought the clip was going already. The priest feeds him, gives him a warm place to stay. But in the middle of the night, because he's so filled with bitterness and anger and hatred, he steals the church's silver. And then he leaves at night, and you're going to see that, but then he's arrested. And I want you to see what love can do. We're going to see what love can do. Maybe. We're going to see. We have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. Seeing this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man by the witness of the martyrs by the passion and the blood God has raised you out of darkness I have saved your soul for Thank you. How many believe one act of love can save a soul for God? I want us to stand and pray. Father, I just thank you that you are changing us. And we cry out and say, God, we want to be changed. In the face of the growing evil that's in our culture, the hatred, the intense brokenness, would you raise up the fellowship, the family of love? 
that in the face of injustice, even towards us, God, would we love like you love? Lord, would we love people as if we were ministering to you? And in Jesus' name, or on the behalf of Christ, God, would we be like you in ministering to those around us? And Father, I, I'm asking for something special this morning. Would you just give us an abundance of grace to begin to be a people of kindness and gentleness and goodness? Lord, I'm asking that even this morning we would begin to take baby steps. And God, I'm asking you to tenderize our hearts. I confess to you that my heart has hard places where I just say, I'm not going to be hurt by that person anymore. I ask God that you would take that stony place and replace it with your heart to where I will say, I will love that person again. I ask that all over the, the room this morning that you would personalize where we need to go with this message. But God, just as we showed on the video, let us act as this man in the face of what we perceive to be injustice. Let goodness and love and your light overcome darkness. And by doing, let us show forth your salvation. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Bless you today. Have a great week in Jesus.